Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 41 to 51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I grew up in a, an era where there were altar calls. And I don't know if any of you Perhaps when you sit here on Sundays, you might think to yourself, I wonder why he doesn't end with an altar call every Sunday. Um, it, it was very much a part of what it meant to be a Christian and going to some sort of service or crusade or ministry is to actually respond by coming up to the front or perhaps by raising your hand and Maybe the preacher would say, I want everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. And I want to see if you would like to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And all you need to do is raise your hand, say the sinner's prayer, believe with your heart, and then you'll be saved. Again, I have a feeling that I'm not the only one who sort of was raised in the church or in Christianity with that type of framework. But... The question that I want to ask regarding that idea is, is that actually what the Bible teaches? Or is that just something that we have grown up with without really wondering, what is this about? What does it mean to draw near to Jesus on your own? Or does it take the power of God himself to actually cause you to draw near? It's a really big question. It has so many implications to faith. And so what I'd like to do is to look at John chapter 6, verses 41 through 51, and talk about these three ideas in light of that. First, the necessity of the drawing. And I would say this is uh, where we'll park and spend some time on working through, is this what is required of us? Second, the blessings of the drawing. And then third, the cost of the drawing. So first, the necessity of the drawing. We're going to look at verses 41 to 42 again, where John provides some context. And he says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now, now say, I have come down from heaven? Remember the story where we're at. Jesus has performed two incredible miracles. One, he multiplied bread and fish enough to feed 20,000 people from five loaves and two fish. Pretty substantial of a miracle. Second, he walks on water. 
And both of those miracles, very few people actually trust in Christ. They're amazed by the miracle, but they don't actually believe in who he is. And so in light of that, we get to John chapter 6, and here we see that the Jewish leaders, they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're angered by Jesus. And what are they angry about? They're angry because Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they get angry because they think, wait a second, this Jesus, he's uneducated. We know his parents. And surely this is no one special. No one's significant. He's an uneducated simpleton. And for him to say such things, how dare he? There was so much pride. And from that pride flows this anger. See, they don't mind Jesus, the miracle maker. They don't mind him doing what we allow him to do. He, sh he should fit in the box, but move outside of the box. And no, we're not going to accept that. And so they become angry with him. The Apostle Paul comments on this mindset, the mindset of someone who can see miracles, can hear the teaching of Christ, and yet, despite all of that, there's not even a hint of a willingness to actually trust in Christ, to believe in him. And the reason why Paul says people can't do this is because of Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. When Paul says this, he's saying, you know, there's a full inability to follow God. It's just not possible. You can't trust God by your own power and volition. And the reason is because we never started out that way. We didn't desire to follow Christ. Now, I know perhaps some of you might be asking this question. Do I have free will? I've actually been, at, it's interesting, I've been asked that question a lot in the past, I would say, month. And the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, you have a free will to choose to do whatever you want. But that's where the problem lies. The problem lies in what we want to do, what we desire in our hearts. And what we want in our hearts is to do whatever we want apart from God. That there's nothing in us that says suddenly, I think I'll choose God today. It's in fact quite the opposite. It's always whatever I want to do, I will do because I am my own God. I'm autonomous. I don't need God in my life. And so in that place, to suddenly decide to choose God it would truly take a miracle. The Apostle Paul describes our hearts, our will, our being this way in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through two. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. You know, Paul, he doesn't leave us any room. When you're dead, you can't talk, you can't speak, you can't think, you can't respond, you can't act, you can't desire. The word dead means nothing. So dead people cannot decide to choose God. And if you think that's the case, you have to deal with these words. What does that look like? A dead person cannot choose to follow Christ. You have to stop there and think about that a lot. 
I really like the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, Jesus is essentially saying like this. Every human heart is like a person who is bewitched. Imagine someone has put a spell on you so every single food, every single nutrient you really need, you see, because of the spell, as vomit and excrement so that you will never eat what you need. And so you're dying slowly. You're starving slowly. What hope for a person like that is there? Only intervention. Only intervention. It's not that you can't choose the right thing. It's just you will never want to choose the right thing unless there's an intervention or there's an external force. Something has to come outside of you to change your heart because internally, our inclination is to want to do whatever we want as long as God is not involved because the two are pitted against one another, God himself and our own personal will. And instinctually, we don't want to follow God. We want to do what's right for me, not what is most honoring to God. And so when Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a reason why no one can come to Christ or no one is able to come to Christ. And that verse, Jesus just doesn't allow us the bandwidth to say, well, can I have at least 0.001% of the ability to come? I was discussing this with uh, some people after the first worship. And by the way, if you have any questions on this, because there might be a lot of questions, you're welcome to uh, WhatsApp, the WhatsApp group on sermon questions. I'll try to answer them to the best of my ability. But there were some questions asked. Can I have the 0.001%? Like, isn't it, can I just have a little bit? And the reality is that it's not really like that. You know, it's, we can't divide ourselves up into quadrants or some sort of uh, section, compartmentalize a little bit of a portion of yourself. When we say, I want a little bit of control, what we're ultimately doing is we're resting that control from God. And even though theoretically I'm giving like a percentage, there really is no way to do that. It's if you take a little bit of autonomy, you take it all. And instinctually, when you're saying, I, I want to do this on my own God apart from you, you're essentially saying, I want it all. I want control over my life. And that's what Jesus is saying is that when it comes to salvation, it's just not possible. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We cannot, we will not ever desire to come to Christ on our own. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is too much impeding our ability to know God and to see him. It is sin. It is Satan. It is all that is in my own heart that says, I'm my own God. I'm not going to follow God. Because all humanity is dead, dead and blinded from seeing the light of the gospel, we are forever inclined to want nothing to do with God. That's our natural inclination. We have the free will to sin. 
meaning we have the free will to do whatever we want apart from God. And every time, every day, you choose to live by your own effort and merit, you absolutely can do that. But what you cannot do is suddenly by your own will and strength to say, I'm going to trust in God today fully. It's just not possible because our greatest desire is always to worship myself, to do things on my own apart from God, and we don't want him. But you might say, surely there are some, a little bit of good people who actually can within their own effort desire to want to follow God. And here's where it's so interesting. The word that is so often used is the word good to understand ourselves and other people in the world. When you think about the word good, we tend to think about it from the context of a general goodness of the world, of humanity. Good means we haven't murdered anyone. As long as you haven't murdered anyone, you're good. That's sort of how, I'm, I'm not so bad, I haven't murdered anyone. Therefore, you are good. Um, it's, if you're nice, generally nice, the word nice is often equated synonymous with good. As long as you seem friendly enough, you're good. Good means an offsetting of bad or good. Yeah, I've, I've done some bad things, but I'm much more good than I am bad. That type of thinking is part of a Hinduistic, Buddhistic philosophy of you know, yin, yin and yang and karma. It's as long as you've done more good than bad, then things will go well for you. Again, good is determined, though, by what we believe good is. And our understanding of good, if you really drill down and start unpacking it, you begin to see that the goodness that we think is so good is actually not so good. But if you read Matthew 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to see a little bit more of what Jesus believes goodness is. And what Paul says when he says, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one is good inherently, then you begin to understand why no one is righteous. There was a rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks this question in response to that question. The question is, why do you call me good? Again, Jesus challenges the premise of goodness. And his answer is, tell me what you've done. And he says, well, I've obeyed all the commandments. I've kept this commandment, this commandment, this commandment. And then Jesus says, that's great. Now go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. And he thinks about all that he has and he says, I can't do that. You know, here's the problem with that man is that he believed goodness rested in, again, some sort of general sense of whatever society believes as good. He can give some of his money, of course, and he's thought of charitably. But what Jesus is saying is that deep down, who are you going to live for, yourself or God? And he just could not say, I'm going to live for God. For Jesus, he was challenging that one place, that one pressure point that was going to really ask and begs the question, who do you believe in? For that man, it was his wealth. For some of you and me, maybe it's our family. For some of us, it's our health. 
something in our lives where he's going to hit that one point that says, okay, what do you really believe? Do you really trust me or not? And if the answer is yes, then get ready for that one point to be pressed. And it hurts. But that's where we understand what it means to actually be good, to define ourselves with the ultimate good, which is God himself. And so in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus presses the point to the Pharisees because they say, well, I'm pretty good. I haven't murdered anyone. And Jesus says, well, if you are angry in your heart, you've murdered. And then people say, well, I haven't committed adultery. I've been faithful to my husband and wife. And he says, if you've lusted once, you've committed adultery. You've you've murdered, you committed adultery. It's not the behavior that makes one sinful. It's the heart's motivation that is going to make one sinful, that is going to lead to the action of sin. I always think to myself, especially as we go to places like Africa, maybe volunteering with City Impact, you're going to the Tenderloin, and you meet different people. What is the difference between you and the person born in Burundi, the person born in the DRC in Goma, the person born in the Tenderloin? The difference is not that we're morally righteous. The difference is a place of birth. It's our objective birth, where we've been born. If you are placed into the context where your parents had abandoned you, where drugs and violence are, is all around you, and that's all you know, may I say that it is a strong possibility that we would have been no different than anyone living in those type of areas. The reason scripture gives and Jesus gives as to why this is the case is because it's our heart that makes us a sinner, not the sin itself. And so we're just going to act upon it given our circumstances and our situations. And so the only way that we can be drawn out of this is not going to be because my will is strong. My will is not strong. Anyone who tries fasting knows wills are weak. There is not will enough in me to decide suddenly, I want to obey God. If you want to test us out, try reading scripture every day, consistently. Try praying for just your own family every day without fail. Why is it that we fail so often? Because our will is weak. How can that will that is so free decide suddenly to obey and worship Christ and believe that he is truly Lord and Savior. It is not because we have an intellect that has rationally understood what it means to believe in Jesus. It's because God has rescued us and compelled us. In John 6, 44, Jesus uses a word, draw. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And so that word draw is really that compelling word that takes someone who was once dead and makes them alive in Christ, takes the stony heart, breaks it down, and in its place gives a heart of flesh. You cannot love someone you had no desire for, and then suddenly it changes to full-on love. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is saying God does through his spirit. But there's an argument that is made that this doesn't mean what it says. And so R.C. Sproul, who's a theologian, 
He makes this important observation in chapter 644. He, he says the word draw has been argued to mean not compel, but to mean entice or woo or invite. And so hence the, the drawing, the inviting is not effectual, meaning it doesn't actually cause an effect. It's just an invitation. It says the father is just saying, come on, please come. And so he was in a debate with a professor of New Testament and he was, they were arguing over the word draw, which meant woo, which he was arguing draw meant woo, the New Testament professor. And he said, I was taking the position that God does more than invite and entice and woo. I think the word here is very strong because it's the same word that is used in the book of Acts when Paul and Silas are dragged, or the word drag is draw, dra draw into prison. It's not like the jailer went inside the bars and tried to woo Paul and Silas saying, come on, fellows, please come on in here. He compelled them to go inside that jail. I think the word there is strong, and I pointed that out to the New Testament professor. Then he surprised me somewhat because he quoted the use of the same verb that he found in some other Greek literature where the verb was used to describe the human activity of drawing water from a well. And the professor went on to say, now you don't compel water to come up out of the well. And I said, but I have to say, you don't woo it either. You don't stand up there and say, here water, 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 here water, and expect the water on its own power to jump up out of the well into your bucket. You have to go down with your bucket and take and compel that water to come. I think the force of that verb is to say that we are in desperate need of the assistance of God to come to Christ, and we will not come to Christ unless the Father brings us to him. Now here's the big question. Who is the author of your salvation? You or God? That's what it really ultimately boils down to. And the human will, us as people who want nothing to do with God, that's the last thing we ever want to hear is someone compels us to believe. Rather, it's, oh, of course, I believe with my own free will. And while it is true, we believe to some extent in a certain way, but there is no way when we were completely opposed to God that suddenly we go, oh, actually, I will believe. Again, I think all you need to do is think about the person, if you happen to be married, or if you ever fall in love, or anything like that. What is it that, do you ever go, I mean, we, we talk about love at first sight, I don't believe it. And there's a reason why, there are many reasons why. Love is much more than romance. But I think for those who are married, know that for sure. But you do not love in an instant. You love over the time that is brought, and there's, it takes so much. You have to know this person. You have, there is a, a covenant, a contract. And so in that same way, to imagine that somehow we could suddenly have this effectual change of our hearts, to suddenly want God when we had what? He was not someone we liked. Paul says in Romans 5.10, we were enemies of God. We didn't want anything to do with him. And then to suddenly say, I love him. That just doesn't make sense based on my will. Either you all have perhaps powerful wills, supernaturally, inherently powerful wills, or you surrender and you say, it is God and God alone. Salvation belongs to him. Jesus says in John 6, 37, 
all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is never any doubt what happens when the Father gives us to his Son. So what are the blessings? That's the necessity. What's the blessings of this drawing? The first is freedom. Drawing is not dependent on your effort, on your communicative skills, on your ability to answer hard theological questions. So if you tell someone about Jesus, a classmate, a friend, a family member, and you go up to them and they have this really hard question for you. Well, if God is such a good God, why is there suffering in this world? Then you go, you just start stammering and you think, great. I, don't, I just became a Christian myself. I don't even have the answers to these questions. And you go, oh, I messed up. I, I, th- their whole eternity is lost because of my answer, my, my just weak answer to this person. I know some of you have gone through that feeling before. But you know what? You are free from that type of thinking if you believe John 6, this way. No one is going to be lost because of your incapable, inarticulate words. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to make sure that you don't say dumb things and cause someone to lose their salvation. That is to say that our methodology does not save anyone. And I remember when my generation, Generation X, we had the cool, like before it was baby boomers, uh, busters or whatever. And then we had Generation X. We had the first cool name of a generation. And so when I was in Generation X, and I remember having this uh, conversation with a professor of mine, and he was saying, your generation is so lazy and so, and I thought to myself, yeah, but we're really cool. You know, we, we have it all. I mean, this is the type of music we listen to. This is how we dress. I used to pin my pants down below, wear Dracar Noir. And I know you all are thinking that's disgusting, but, um, and that there would be this evangelism plan that would target that group. And we say, we try to figure out ways to do that. And now we say, well, but, the way to share the gospel today with people, not just like that, because I'm of a bygone generation now, but Generation Z, the next cool name. And, oh, you can't, can't go door to door with them. You can't even have relationships with them because they, they see through your inauthenticity. And Well, here's the thing. If you believe John 6.44... The methodology does not matter to how you share the gospel with this person. What the Lord is looking for is your heart. He just wants to use you wherever you are, however unskillful you are, whatever method you use, but you trust him. You don't get to this place, though, if you believe it's all about you. It's all about what you say, what you do. And when you go to that place... You become deathly scared of sharing the gospel with other people because you're so concerned with, well, they're a different generation. They're a little different. They, they're closed. It's my family member. It's my mom, my dad. I know them so well. They know me. They changed my diapers. They will never turn to Christ. That's if salvation belongs to you. But if salvation belongs to the Lord, 
you never give up on them. And you're always free. You're free to share Christ. You don't have to be a professional evangelist because it is not dependent on your work or effort that they're going to trust in Jesus. So instead, just share. Just proclaim. Just talk. The Father drawing guarantees that not one person he desires to be saved will be lost. Everyone whom the Father desires to be saved will be saved. And your efforts or your lack of efforts, your skill or your feeble words, your lack of theological understanding to really hard questions, don't worry. That won't fail to save them. That won't mess them up. That's the freedom that you have. You have the freedom to be bold, to be faithful, to take steps where you're going to decide to do something, not because the first rejection is going to deter you, but you trust that God is going to take that and use that and perhaps save them even at the very end. Freedom to be able to do the work of sharing Christ. Second assurance, the blessing of our drawing is assurance. Remember John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We need never doubt that the Lord will absolutely do the work if he so wills. That's what John 6, 37 is saying. So when he draws you, he's not going to let you go. He's going to carry you. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus says, no one will snatch you out of the Father's hand. There is full assurance and confidence of success to save. And it's not going to be because of your intellect, winsomeness, power, that's going to save anyone. There is not a single person in the world's history who has been saved through rational argumentation. There's a story of Philip Johnson. He was a professor of law at, um, at Berkeley Law School. And he wrote the book Darwin on Trial. He's really an incredibly brilliant, smart man. You know how he was saved? Not because, think of a lawyer. You would think a lawyer would be saved by really strong, rational argumentation. He was saved because he was walking outside one day and they were having VBS. And he heard the sermon that was meant for children of the gospel. And he heard that and he came to believe in Christ. A child's, a sermon to children saving a Berkeley law professor who would become one of the great advocates of rational thinking as a Christian, arguing for intelligent design. Is that because of rational argumentation that he came, became saved? Absolutely not. It's the drawing of the father to the son. And he will take words such as the great St. Augustine. How did he turn to the Lord? Because children were saying, take and read, take and read. And he picked up the Bible and opened it up and came to one passage of scripture and said, I believe. So that doesn't happen because suddenly we come to this real theological illumination based on argumentation. So I, I believe this. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, there's no place for understanding theologically. If you know me, you know I believe in it with all my heart. I never think that saves anyone. 
But I do think it's really good for my soul and for yours as a believer. I think it's important for us to understand why. I think it's important to ask the hard questions. But we never think that that hard question, the answer to it, actually saves a person. It's Christ, by his spirit, as the father draws the person who is dead to the son through the spirit and believes. And this is our God. I really love the way J.I. Packer puts it in his incredible book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, two what sounds like contradictory ideas. He says this, there is no magic in methods, not even in theologically impeccable methods. When we evangelize, our trust must be in God who raises the dead. He is the almighty Lord who turns people's hearts and he will give conversions in his own time Meanwhile, our part is to be faithful in making the gospel known, sure that such labor will never be in vain. This is how the truth of the sovereignty of God's grace bears on evangelism. He will give conversions in his own time. Now, as someone who believes wholeheartedly in biblical parenting, we spent a whole evening talking about grace-centered parenting. I believe in family worship, catechisms, reading scripture, teaching, memorizing scripture, discipling your children, doing all these things. We homeschooled our kids. Some of you are putting your kids in Christian education, maybe Christian colleges. But I will say this, none of that saves anyone. So that frees you from guilt, parents. Do not feel guilty that your children do not know Christ. Instead, pray for them. Pray for the Lord of the harvest. Pray that the Lord who is merciful will open their blind eyes so that they will see, will melt the hardened heart and make it a heart of flesh. Doesn't mean we don't parent in grace, intentional, focused, discipling, family worship. There's play. But all these things, they're but tools instruments, but they don't save a single soul. God saves. And he uses means, but ultimately he is the savior. Not me, not the means. We cannot confuse the two. And so it's so important we get this, that he's the one who raises the dead. And every time we fight for our own wills, but don't I have free will? Can I do what I want? Absolutely, you can. And you do have the free will to sin but only God can draw you to himself. But it took a cost. There's a cost to that drawing according to verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's the place where the Pharisees had a hard time with. Once they start talking about Jesus and eating the flesh, which we will do, when we eat the bread and the wine, we're not literally eating it, but we remember that it took the broken body and bloodshed of Christ for us to be drawn to the Father. There's a cost. It's not like, well, you can come without cost. It's true, there's a cost that we cannot pay, but there's a cost that God the Father pays, the cost of his son. And so John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It cost 
the Father the most precious price so that me and you could actually come to him. How can we ever say then that the death of Christ was for a mere possibility? And I know you might not say that, but in actuality, every time we claim it's my will, I chose to believe in God by my effort, we're saying then that Christ, when he died, he died for a possibility. Because here's what happened. If Christ's death was not effectual, then what Jesus has done is when he died on the cross, he's saying, I hope Sam turns to Christ, turns to me. I'm not sure. I don't know. Actually, when Jesus died on the cross, if it's not effectual, he didn't die for a single person. He died only for possibilities. He died for the potentiality of you possibly turning to him. But you know what's also possible with that? That when he died on the cross, if his death was not effectual, it means that it's possible he died for no one, that no one would ever turn to him. Because it's a bunch of people who say, well, I'm going to decide on my own. And everyone could have chosen to not, not believe in Christ. That means... Think about the logic of that. That means that when Jesus died, when God sent his son, no one would trust in him. Everyone is lost. How can we say that? Can we say God is merely wooing, hoping, unsure? Is anyone going to turn to me? Is anyone going to trust in my son? He's pleading with us. Please come. There's a hymn that was... um, It's an old hymn. It's Jesus is tenderly calling. I don't know if you ever heard that. It has this idea. Jesus is tenderly calling, calling, calling. He's tenderly calling, meaning he's just sort of wooing and hoping, oh, please come. I don't know if you're going to ever come. My death is there. I don't know if you're ever going to come. Is that what John 6 says? I have to believe that if that's the case, what a tragedy. We have an assurance that when you are drawn by the Father, you will be saved. There's no doubt. And every time you doubt, does God love you? Maybe you're in the thick of a trial. You feel like prayers aren't being answered. Maybe it's through your health, through a job, through conflict within relationships around you, and you're saying, does God really love me? The answer to that question rests solely on this assurance. The assurance of God drew you to himself at the very high cost of his son. You must never doubt God's love for you. He loves for you unimaginably, immeasurably more than you can ever ask for or imagine. I want to close with this. It's a biblical illustration. It's the story of Peter and John. In Acts chapter 4, we're told that they're preaching the gospel, and they go and present it, and they're imprisoned. And in their imprisonment, they're beaten by the religious leaders. They're literally beaten very severely. And they say, we're going to release you, but you are not allowed to preach this message anymore. As soon as they're released, you know what they do? They go and preach the gospel publicly for all to hear. I think about that. You're you're not only imprisoned. It's bad enough to be imprisoned. 
but they're preaching this gospel in light of being beaten. And when they were beaten, they were beaten severely. I don't know if they had broken limbs or like definitely scarring and all this. So as they're preaching, they're bloodied and black and blue. And in this sermon that they're preaching, that Peter's preaching, this is what he says in Acts 4, 27, 28. After being bloodied, he's saying, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, your being God the Father, and your plan had predestined to take place. If you are Peter and John and you're Peter and you're preaching, would you talk? Why would you mention the idea of predestination in a sermon to a bunch of people who have never trusted in Christ. That's just not the way you preach. But here they are, they're bloody, they're black and blue, um, and they're talking about this. You would think that this is the last thing you would want to hear, that your will is constrained, that God had a plan, that he's sovereign. The word predestination, I know we have a hard time with it. We don't like it because we think it weakens one's will and initiative, and there's a compelling aspect to it. But that compulsion is exactly what we need to be brought into a place of not believing to believing. Now, here's what happens. After they preach, he preaches that. Some people turn to Christ. And then this is what Luke records for us as the result of how the church responds to this preaching in Acts 4, 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The response of a person who knows their election is sure, they're confident of God's work, they know that whatever they say, success will be brought. They know that there is a deep assurance of faith and that no matter what they say, how they say it, how loud they are, how articulate they are, how much they know about God's word, that God is going to do the work of saving. And so out of that comes a love for God's word and boldness, courage, faithfulness. It's exactly the opposite. It's so counterintuitive to how we think it would be that, oh, if you talk about predestination and this sense of election, then we're actually going to say, ah, why do I need to even go share the gospel with people? Because they are, if they believe already, then what, what, what role do I have? That person actually doesn't understand this incredibly merciful, kind, and so soul-satisfying idea of who God is. Because they were assured that it wouldn't be their work, that it wouldn't be their morality or immorality, their failures, their inabilities that would save people, they were confident. I mean, think about it. If you were dependent on your efforts, your morality, then you might say, well, I don't think I could ever talk about Jesus with this person because I'm not good enough. I, they know me. And then we talked about this in gospel proclamation is that your family knows you the best. That's why so many of us do not want to share the gospel with family members because they know what we're really like. Oh, but that puts way too much weight on us. 
No, salvation belongs to the Lord, not to you. And it is guaranteed that if the Father draws, he will save. So be bold. Be courageous. Because you love God and you love others, and you believe God is going to draw, you are set free from even your own fickle heart. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell coworkers about Jesus. Tell them the cost and know that that cost is for you. That's what your assurance is based on. It's based on a mighty God who is powerful to save. Let's pray. Father, we know that it is not going to be because of our feeble efforts, our weak wills, our flawed intellect, our irrationality in reasoning that is going to save anyone. Or it's not going to be because we have a PhD in theology or because we've read all these books or because we've memorized the Bible. Oh God, if you can save someone like me, those around us, you can save anyone. And so we want to come to this table recognizing the cost of this drawing. That you didn't just simply invite us. You had to do the incredibly, infinitely most difficult work in all the world. You had to give your only son who would bear the crushing weight of our sin on a tree so that he who the son sets free it's not that they're possibly free. They are free indeed. And I pray for those perhaps who have been wrestling with this idea for a while. It isn't going to be a raising of a hand that's going to cause someone to believe. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, oh God, that you would save people for yourself in this room. Open eyes, unstop ears, oh Lord. And would you make the heart of stone a heart of flesh today? In Jesus' name we pray.